0: I want to begin this morning with a praise and let you know about something really exciting that happened uh, this week. You know, last Sunday, we uh, we had the success lens, right? And Carl Newton joined me on stage and we talked about... Um, how God uses our wealth to advance his mission and encouraged you as a body to think about what that looks like for you to leave a a gift even after you go to be with the Lord that continues the impact uh, of your life. And um, in God's spectacular timing, uh, we got two of those this week. Uh, This week in the mail, uh, two significant legacy gifts were given from our members who had passed away within the last year. Um and together they make a pretty strong six-figure gift. Yeah. Uh, the elders have decided to put that toward retiring our long-term debt faster. And here's what that means for the church. Um, these gifts together literally knock one year's worth of mortgage payments off our debt. And hang on, I'm not done. I'm not done. You can do that in a second. Um, They also saved the church about $45,000 in interest. And we are now under officially a million dollars on our long-term debt. (laughs) So if you want to know how you can make your church one day, uh, Carl and his team will be in the Fellowship Hall after the service today. Uh, down in fellowship Hall, right? Carl, is that right? You guys are down there, so uh, and they'd be happy to talk with you about that process. It's not, it's not, a, it's not an ask. They're teaching, they're helping you know what to do uh, when that day comes, and so uh, it, it's really just a, a powerful thing. And we just are praising God uh, for the the faithfulness uh, of your fellow members who are awaiting you in glory uh, one day. Um, Thank you so much for being here today. Uh, If you're joining us on site, uh, grateful that you did that. For those logging uh, on online, thanks for watching. Uh, Whether you're here in the room, watching online, doesn't matter. Take a second, fill out your connection card. Um, For the last six weeks, we've been in a sermon series called Lenses, trying to equip you uh, to form a Christian worldview. And today's lens is the gender lens. As John mentioned earlier, this uh, PG sermon, uh, we're going to be talking about some pretty grown-up stuff. Sexuality, sex, gender, um, LGBTQIA plus issues. Um, so I'm going to pray in just a second. And if there are any kids here, if you've got, uh, those of you watching at home, you've got little ones in the room, you might want to take them into a different room and get them going on a Bible study Bible story lesson or, or something like that. Um, I, that said, I, I think that this is vital that uh, young people hear. This message, uh, and so as long as they've had, you know, the talk, uh, I, I think that that's that's important. Um, but can we just take a moment because of what we're going to talk about and, and pray together this morning? Would you join me in prayer, please? Father, thank you for this day. Thank you that we get to meet together um, in freedom and peace and safety. We pray for our brothers and sisters around the world, Lord. Uh, that don't enjoy that. Um, God, we are grateful uh, for your love for us that we just sang about. It's so deep and it's so strong. And God, we want to publicly acknowledge that it doesn't matter what someone's experience of their own sex or gender or sexuality is, you love them. And you call us to love them. And so we pray today, Jesus, as we turn our minds to these ideas that you would help us do so with the truth of Scripture and with a heart overflowing with love. I pray, Lord, for an extra measure of clarity in my speech and compassion in my content so that you would be glorified. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. In their 2019 book, Introducing Cultural Anthropology, a Christian Perspective, Brian M. Howell and Janelle Paris talked about their research into gender socialization or how a society or culture produces and maintains gender stereotypes and or differences. And what they determined, even on a global level, across the world, it doesn't matter where, where it is we're talking about on a global level, what they determined is that it is culture, not biology, that really shapes someone's experience of their own gender. They specifically studied how Christians did this and their research was conclusive, especially for those of us here in the United States. A lot of our thinking, our worldview of gender is more cultural than biblical. Now, thankfully, there's a lot of overlap in a country that's historically been Christian. But it is shaped primarily by culture and not primarily by scripture. And that's changing faster and faster and faster as the weeks go by, becoming even more so. And the younger you are, the more that's true. That culture deeply informs our experience, our understanding, and our perpetuation of gender norms. Now, I've been using the word gender a lot, okay, Uh, and I'm going to continue to do so. I think it's important to define the terms that we're going to use today. Uh, Again, drawing from Howell and Paris, they say, In some communities, sex and gender are often used interchangeably to refer to various aspects of maleness and femaleness. A person might mean the very same thing by using three different expressions. They might say the opposite sex or the male gender or masculine, and they mean the same thing all three times. But in modern anthropological studies, they are drawing a distinction between those three things, okay? Sexuality is often, has historically, at least for us, been considered to be automatically or naturally linked to sex and gender. In that view, people are assumed to have a sex, a gender, and a sexuality that is all fits together in either a male way or a female way. And here in the West, that's been the norm for a long, long, long time. Most of you were raised with that understanding. I was raised with that understanding. And there's a good reason for that, and we're going to talk about that this morning. But this understanding that sex, gender, and sexuality all fit together in either a male way or a female way is not the dominant cultural narrative anymore. It was at one time. It's not now. And that's accelerating Okay, and I don't you need to know, this happened long, long before the sexual revolution that started in the 1960s and carried into the 1970s. All right? Long before the sexual revolution changed our, our collective assumptions about gender, this was beginning. Okay? So let's define our terms now. Here's what it looks like now. Sex is considered to be a cultural category that refers to genital. Genetic and/or reproductive functions of the body. Now, you will note the shift in language to the word "cultural" and not "biological." That's significant. There's a, there's a, there's a lot, a lot of thought behind that, and this is what and this is now how anthropologists define this. What they're trying to do is take into account the roughly one percent of the global population. Whose bodies, physical bodies, are not perfectly, uh, you know, gender typical. You know what I mean? So you've got, like, you've got a, a let's, I'm, I told you this is gonna get grown up real quick, okay? So you've got a guy, and all his equipment is normal, except he might have a little extra breast tissue, right? He would fall into that 1%. He, like, it's, it's totally normal, except for this other little genetic thing. And that's what the anthropologists are trying to take into account. But they've changed the language on it. It's not exclusively biological anymore. It's considered to be a cultural category. Okay? So then you've got gender. Gender is a descriptor of what it means to live as a person with a sex identity in a particular culture. So in most cases, that correlates with one's sex, not always. Some anthropologists have noted places in the world with a third gender. The Bugis people in Indonesia have this. They literally, they, in their culture, they categorize there's male and there's female and then there's this other thing that I can't remember the word right now. Now, here's the interesting thing. In all, the, there are, and they're not the only ones. There are some places with five. But none of them have a Judeo-Christian background. Not one. In any other culture in the world where they've got more than one gender, or excuse me, more than two genders, none of them have a Judeo-Christian background. That's significant. And then you have sexuality. Sexuality is a personal expression of the erotic domain of life, right? Sexual thoughts, feelings, behaviors. Now, in contemporary Western culture, that may or may not correspond to your sex or your gender. Right? There was a story in the news several years ago about a woman who wanted to marry the, Berlin, or the uh, Great Wall of China. I don't get that, okay? Um, but... You know, (laughs) we live in a culture where people are like, oh, okay, cool, if that's what turns you on, you know, whatever. Clearly, our culture has drifted a long way from biblical teaching on the issue of gender. But, and this is the point of the whole series, we shouldn't be getting our worldview from our culture anyway, right? The roots of this go way, way, way back. And we're going to talk about that this morning. But here's the truth I want you to hear today, okay? Here's the big idea. A Christian's view of gender should depend more on God's objective standard about it than our subjective experience of it. A Christian's view of gender should depend more on God's objective standard about it than our subjective experience of it. We have it, he doesn't. Now, some of you are like, but you just used a gendered pronoun to refer to him. Yep. But not in the same way that we do. Okay? So he ha- his idea of gender is objective. He created it. He designed it. Right? Our experience of gender is subjective. We experience it. And there's a difference. And what I'm telling you today is that your opinion about gender should come from God's objective standard about it since he designed it and not your subjective experience of it because you experience it. Okay? As I've done in previous weeks, I want to try to illustrate this. I I brought something, a different lens with me today. This is a Fresnel lens. Okay? So this was invented uh, in the, let me get this right here, um, somewhere in the late 1700s, early 1800s by Auguste Jean Fresnel, a French inventor. And what it does is it, it focuses light. It's, it's basically a magnifying glass. Let me see if I can get this to work. There. I don't know if you guys can see that. There's a spot on my hand. The stage lights do it. No, I'm just kidding. It's not hot. Um, but it, it's really fascinating because what this does is it's a combination of a smooth lens and I don't know if you can hear this. There are ridges in it, right? Some of you may use a Fresnel lens as like a, a magnifying thing for your, your book, right? Because they make them in like book size things, and, and this, this one's round. But the way this works is that it, there are these, these um, concentric rings in, in this. Now, the old ones were glass, and they were humongous, right? L- let me show you a picture of what that looks like. So on the right there, there's the original ones that he invented. So you have these concentric rings, and then you can see how they work. Um, And this is, you know, a plastic so they can shrink it down and make it really small. Um, But you've got these rings on it and they take light from an oblique source and they focus it. And what happens is it creates this cone of light that's, that's imaged onto my hand. They use these in lighthouses. Back in the day, they installed these in lighthouses. And so they'd have their light source in the middle of it. And it would focus that light, and then they'd send it through another lens, and it would shoot that beam way, way, way out into the darkness. This Fresnel lens is known as the lens that saved a million ships. Because they were able to project the beam of a lighthouse further out into the darkness. This lens creates a focusing point There's a singular point where the light passing through the lens reaches its maximum focus. And you can use these, if you're into survivalism, you should have one of these in your bug out bag. Because it's a pretty efficient way to start a fire. You put it, this has a focal lens of 200 millimeters. So I put it 200 millimeters away from a a dry leaf, and with enough sunlight, it'll ignite. Okay? When you flip the lens around, so I'm, I'm showing you, this is the smooth side, and you've got the ridges on that side. If I flip it around right? This is now the smooth side is facing toward me. It'll focus the light, but it's, it's a little fuzzy. It doesn't hit that nice, fine, sharp point. Okay. It it still focuses, but that it's, it moves around a lot. It's hard to get to pinpoint. And I think that that's kind of the way that the gender lens works. It forces us to focus on the issue, but you have to look through it the right direction for it to achieve its true purpose. In the same way, the gender lens only works when you pass the truth of God's word and the power of God's um, Holy Spirit working in our lives through it the right way to light up the darkness surrounding this issue of gender. Because if you turn it around and you try to go the other way, and you pass human philosophy through this, and if you pass our common experience of brokenness through this, it provides some insight, but it's fuzzy. It moves around a lot. It's kind of (laughs) squishy. And it's not something that you can build a life on that's ultimately fulfilling. So if our goal in this series has been to form a Christian worldview on the issue of gender, I think it would be important to go to, like, the first Christian, you know, Jesus, um, to determine what that should be. We are only going to get God's objective standard from Jesus. In Matthew chapter 22, Jesus is approached by a group of religious leaders. We're going to look at that passage in a little while, but not right away. They come to him with a question, and his response, while not specifically about gender still reveals his and therefore God's objective truth about it. And in saying that, Jesus tells us that there are two things that we need to send through the gender lens in order to amplify and shed light on the issue. The first thing is the scriptures. Jesus says that we need to know and understand the scriptures. Sir Ian McKellen who played Gandalf in the Lord of the Rings movies and who is openly gay, once made a confession. He said, whenever I stay at a hotel, I always check to see if they have a Gideon Bible. And if they do, I tear out a page, he said. He opens his Bible to Leviticus 18.22 and he rips out the page, which is directed, he says, against homosexuals. And he he, he confessed, he says, by now I think I must have ripped out a few hundred. He claims that his motives are purely altruistic. This is what he says. Who knows, there might be someone who has insomnia who reads the Bible because they have nothing else to do and who might be especially vulnerable to what I really think is Leviticus's pornography. Hmm. Well, Sir Ian makes a great Gandalf. Professional opinion. But a lousy theologian because the same chapter also tells men not to have sex with their daughters or their animals. I'm pretty sure he's not okay with those things. Great Gandalf, lousy theologian, because he's choosing one thing that the Bible says about sex and gender and sexuality, but ultimately he's starting too far down the road. I mean, if he really wanted to delete what God has to say about it, he needs to go back two books and 17 chapters to Genesis 1. Let's look at that. Genesis 1.27 says, So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. In the original Hebrew text, the singular man, Adam in Hebrew, is created as a plurality, male and female. And the purpose of that creation, the purpose of that gendered creation, is given in the text. Multiply. Fill the earth. Right? He's tell, have babies. Just trying to obey the Lord, right? Like, I'm just. Um, Here's a point from that. Your biological sex is assigned by God. When when he created you in the womb, he assigned that, okay? And there are times that that goes awry due to the effects of living in a fallen, broken universe. That's that roughly 1% that's not perfectly gender normal, right? 99% of the time, it works exactly as God designed it. Here's what that means. For the Christian... This means that your feelings about your own body or your own sex slash gender slash sexuality are not the ultimate arbiter of reality. If God created you and he made your body a certain way, your feelings about it are not ultimate. That's not to say they're not important. That's not to say that they're not real. That's not to say that they can't really drive a lot of your thinking and feeling, but they're not ultimate. God as designer, God as creator, gets the last say. (laughs) He is the one who determines ultimate reality on this issue. And this directly contradicts the current cultural narratives on the issue. Now, I'll say more about that in a bit. There's another verse in the next chapter that takes this even further. Remember, God brings all the animals to Adam to have him give them names. And then we read in Genesis 2, 21, so the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. The man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh, she shall be called woman for she was taken out of man. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife and they become one flesh. In its essence, this passage teaches the doctrine that God's intent for human sexual experience and reproduction belongs within the covenant of marriage of a man and a woman. It's the way God designed it to work from the very beginning of creation. And I want you to hear me here because this is so important. The scriptures teach that the divine purpose of our experience as gendered beings is not rooted in our sexual satisfaction. The reason God gave you sex, the reason God gave you gender is not so that you will have a, a, a you know <laughs> a mind-blowing experience with your spouse. let's put it that way. It's not so that you will re- achieve maximum sexual satisfaction in your life. Rather, the reason God created us this way is for the purpose of procreation and to put us in a family. God did this to A, propagate the species, that's what he says, and B, they, they leave and cleave, man. You cling to one another. The purpose of this is to create families. That is in direct opposition to the predominant cultural narrative on this issue, isn't it? Now, if you grew up with, like I did, with a pretty binary view of this issue, right? Right? and you probably heard the same thing I did growing up, God made Adam and Eve, not Adam and Steve, right? Like, we've heard that. You might be sitting there wondering, how in the world did we get from, you know, Father Knows Best and Leave It to Beaver in the 1950s to, to, you know, Friends and Will and Grace in the 90s to I Am Jazz, a show about a young transgender girl now? Like, some of you are this there, it's so fast. It just happens so fast. <laughs> well, if you want to understand how it happened, I have a recommendation for you. This book by Carl R. Truman, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. Here, if you can't see it, here's the subtitle. Cultural Amnesia, Expressive Individualism, and the Road to the Sexual Revolution. And basically what Truman does, and by the way, he taught philosophy at Princeton. Not a dumb guy. He's a Christian, dear brother in the Lord. What he does is he basically walks through how we got to where we are. And if, that, if this is something that you're like, how in the world did this happen? He will tell you, okay? Um, one of the, I've recommended a bunch of books. This is probably the bottom of the deep end of the deep pool, Right, um, where you grew up when you were a kid, they have two pools. There's the kiddie pool where the little ones play, and then there's the big pool where everybody plays. And the big pool has a deep end where the high dive is. That's this, okay? It, it's it's exceedingly deep. Um, it's very very good, but uh, you, you'll need a dictionary to read it, okay? Um, one of the things that he talks about in this book is a cultural shift that he attributes uh, the description of it to a philosopher named um, Alistair McIntyre came up with a term called emotivism. Okay, I'm going to teach you a new word today. You didn't know this when you came in, you're going to learn it. Emotivism. Emotivism is the idea that all evaluative judgments, specifically moral judgments, are nothing but expressions of preference, attitude, or feeling. Basically, and here's the definition, emotivism presents preferences as if they were truth claims. In other words, we live in a culture where the highest truth claim you can make is, that's how I feel. And there's nothing anyone can say about that, right? When someone drops that on you, well, that's how I feel. That's, they've, they've, they've played their trump card. That's emotivism. And you take that and you see it through the lens of our secular, pluralistic, therapeutic, Western culture, and you get this. Here's a quote from the book, all right? You ready? Buckle up. The expressive individual is now the sexually expressive individual. And education and socialization are to be marked not by the cultivation of traditional sexual interdicts and taboos, but rather by the abolition of such and the enabling of pansexual expression even among children. One might regard this change as obnoxious, but it reflects the logic of expressive individualism in the sexualized world that is the progeny of the consummation of the Marx-Freud nuptials. And all God's people said, what? <laughs> let me translate that out of, by the way, that's not endemic of the whole thing. I mean, it's, it's, that's, um, it's very, very bright. Some of it doesn't read quite so densely. Um, let me translate that out of academic. Here's what he's saying. He's saying that at some point in the past, the political philosophy of Karl Marx, that everything is political. Had a one night stand hooked up with and got pregnant with the political or the um, psychological philosophy of Sigmund Freud, that everything is sexual. And that's why we are in the culture that we're in. What he's saying is that when you disagree with someone's expression of their sexuality it has now become political oppression marx and freud had a baby whoa you want to know why we are where we are that if you want to know why our culture has moved so far away from father knows best and leave it to beaver that the thinking of marx and the thinking of freud had a baby Scripture directly pushes back against that. And so must we. As Christians, we must continue to lovingly, graciously, compassionately insist, especially when it means going against the flow of our culture, that sex and gender and sexuality are from God that there is a design and an intent behind them and that they are tools for building families, not toys for Friday nights. And I understand that that is a very different message than you're getting from our culture, especially for those of you who are younger. But I can tell you confidently, that's what Jesus thinks about the issue. And I'm also convinced that his perspective on the issue is not strident, it's it's not harsh. Church, we've got some repenting to do because on this issue we have so often been strident and harsh. Jesus wasn't. He articulated this very clearly. The standard is crystal clear, but with great love. And in a way that I think our culture would actually receive. Jesus' way is warm and winsome. We're gonna see why in a bit. The reason for that is the the other light that we're sending through this gender lens. You see, first we have to send scripture through it, but we also have to understand and send through it the power of God. Earlier, I mentioned this encounter that Jesus had with a group of religious leaders. This has really shaped my thinking on this issue. Uh, Let's look at this text together. Look with me at Matthew 22. That same day, the Sadducees, who say there's no resurrection. Remember, you have four groups of the Jewish elite, right? You have Sadducees, Pharisees, Essenes, and Zealots, all right? They didn't all, the Sadducees were the ones with all the political power. Most of the Sanhedrin were Sadducees. They didn't believe in the resurrection, okay? They say there's no resurrection, came to him with a question. Teacher, they said, Moses told us that if a man dies without having children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up offspring for him. What they're talking about is the doctrine of levirate marriage that's detailed in Deuteronomy 25, 5 through 6. Because the point, remember, of gender is to have families, right? So God wants the inheritance to pass from family to family to family to family to family. And so if your brother dies without having kids, the, the man has to marry his wife so that he can have children for his brother, That's God's deal. If you have issues with it, take it up with him. But that's what he said, okay? So, they say, Now there were seven brothers among us. The first one married and died. Since he had no children, he left his wife to his brother. Deuteronomy 25. The same thing happened to the second and third brother, right on down to the seventh. Finally, the woman died. No kidding. Now then... At the resurrection, which tells us we're pretty sure they're just making this story up. They're not reporting on a true thing that happened. They're making up a hypothetical. At the resurrection, whose wife will she be of the seven? Since all of them were married to her. Jesus replied, now look at what he says here. Look at what he says. You are in error because you do not know the scriptures or the power of God. At the resurrection, people will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like the angels in heaven. There it is. There's Jesus' understanding of gender. Did you see it? What he's saying here is, you know, that the reason our culture has this all messed up is that they don't know or understand the scriptures and they don't know and understand the power of God. And my outline today is straight from the lips of Jesus. So if you don't like it, take it up with him. Jesus says, if we wanna get this gender thing right and understand this issue the way he does, we need to know and understand the power of God, specifically as it applies to the issue of gender. We see the power of God displayed in gender in two ways. One of them comes right from this text in Matthew. The first way is this, that God will transcend your sex gender one day. The subtext of Jesus' statement about becoming like the angels in Matthew twenty-two thirty is the idea that your sex, your sexuality will, in heaven will go away. Now, we don't know exactly what that means or what that looks like. I, I don't completely understand it. But what I know here is that Jesus is speaking the truth because, I mean, who else would know but him? And he says that in heaven one day, you won't have sex and gender like you do here in this life. Now, here's what that tells us. What that tells us is that your ultimate identity is disconnected from your gender. In the mind of God, your ultimate personhood is disconnected from your gender. Now this puts the discussion about transgender people in a different light, doesn't it? It means we should have compassion for them. Because maybe without even realizing it, they are longing for what Jesus promises us here, aren't they? They are longing for a time when their experience of their physical body Matches the way they feel in their head. Remember, we will have, 1 Corinthians tells us when we're resurrected, we will have physical bodies like Jesus had in his resurrection. Your resurrection will be into a physical body. And Jesus promises us that one day in heaven, that experience will match the way we are in our head because we'll be like the angels. And I don't totally understand that. But what we do know for sure from what Jesus says is that one day God will transcend your sex, your gender. We will be fully integrated beings in the resurrection. And one day God is gonna do that and he will make us our true selves. Until he does though, And this is also key. We have to live faithful lives in the bodies he has given us. And that's the second way that we see the power of God through the lens of gender. God will transcend your sex and gender one day, and God can transcend your sex and gender this day. Valentine's Day is tomorrow. Guys... Last chance, John warned you earlier, I'm telling you again, now you're accountable. Um, There's gonna be tons of candy, right? Lots of chocolate floating around. What's that like for a diabetic that loves chocolate? Today is the Super Bowl. Ew, yeah. What's that like for an alcoholic at a Super Bowl party? where, to quote a very dumb movie, the beer flows like wine. Thank you. What's that like to desperately desire something, chocolate for a diabetic, alcohol for an alcoholic, that you know is not good for you? How should we feel toward those folks? Compassion. Now, God can transcend that. God can go beyond that. If, if we feel that way for, for a diabetic around Valentine's Day chocolate, if we feel that way for an alcoholic or at a Super Bowl party, how much more then, church, should we feel compassion for someone wrestling through such an intimate and personal issue as the relationship between their sex and their gender and their sexuality? Answer, a lot And this is where the teaching of Christopher Yuan comes in. Uh, I've actually met the author of this book, Holy Sexuality and the Gospel. Uh, Christopher is a teacher at Moody Bible Institute, um, and he's gay. Some of you are like, "Uh, wait, what? He's he's attracted to men. He's celibate. He has chosen a life of celibacy until or if God changes his, his affections. And he says what we need is not homosexuality or heterosexuality, but holy sexuality. And in this book, he paints a powerful picture of what it means for God to transcend your sex, your gender, your sexuality in this life. In it, he's critiquing in chapter 5 the insufficient and worldly categories of heterosexual or homosexual, and he writes this. We have pigeonholed ourselves into the wrong framework for biblical sexual expression. Heterosexuality, bisexuality, homosexuality. It is time to break free from this paradigm and embrace God's vision for sexuality. Holy sexuality consists of two paths, chastity and singleness and faithfulness in marriage. Chastity is more than simply abstention from extramarital sex. It conveys purity and holiness. Faithfulness is more than just merely maintaining chastity and avoiding illicit sex. It conveys covenantal commitment. Both of these embody the only correct biblical sexual ethic and unambiguously articulate the exact expressions of sexual behavior that God blesses. What Brother Yuan is teaching us from a path that he has walked that very few people have is that it doesn't matter what your sex or gender or sexuality is. God calls Christians. People of the world are gonna do what they do, but God calls Christians to a holy life And scripture lays out a clear path for that. And it doesn't matter if you're lesbian or or gay or bisexual or transgender or queer or intersex or asexual. LGBTQIA, that's what that stands for. Or H, heterosexual. It doesn't matter. If you are bought by the blood of Jesus, your body belongs to him. And if you are bought by the blood of Jesus, then the Holy Spirit will enable you to live in the power of the Spirit in your body. So what do we do? First, you show compassion. Church, I think we need to work a lot harder at that to show compassion and not be so strident and harsh. And if you're struggling with this, just imagine what would it be like for an alcoholic at a Super Bowl party? What's it like for a diabetic on Valentine's Day? And let that shape your thinking. Secondly, I think we need to work a lot harder to destroy Freud's thinking that everything is sexual. And, and rediscover the biblical idea of friendship. Christopher talks about this in, in such a beautiful way. He describes, we, because, because Freud's thinking that everything is sexual, it has destroyed friendship in our culture. We don't even know how to be friends anymore. Two guys can't see each other on the street and come up and give each other a great big hug without people going, but they're gay. That's wrong. We've got to disassemble that in our culture. There's a beautiful passage in Isaiah 56. I want you to look at this. I think it's up on the screen. This is what the Lord says to the eunuchs. These are men who've been castrated, so their experience of their gender is different than the other men in their culture. To the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose what pleases me and hold fast to my covenant. Look at this. To them I will give within my temple and its walls a memorial and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that will endure forever. You see that? He's saying, I, I'm going to give them something better than children. I'm going to give them a family. We need to rediscover this idea of friendship. What if, church, what if we led the way in helping people find their way out of this ethical fog that they're in just by being their friend? I had five years of Bible college and five years of seminary. Ten years total. At no time during a decade of Christian higher education did anyone teach me what to do or say if I ever found myself at a table full of lesbians. But that happened in August of 2019. True story. I went back to Joplin for my 25-year high school reunion. Somehow, I don't know how, I'm going to chalk it up to the sovereignty of God. All my classmates uh, went from the the porch area of the venue where we met um, to the dining room area, and we sat down, and I was the last one there, and the only seat left was at a table full of lesbians. And that's where I sat. Um three of my now lesbian classmates with their spouse slash girlfriend. This was after Hodges versus Obergefell. A couple of them had married. And and it sounds like the setup to a joke, right? Pastor walks into a bar with six lesbians, but it actually happened. (laughs) The bar was the venue, just relax. Wasn't my choice. One of my classmates' wives, uh, spouse, was across the table from me directly. Just making conversation, hadn't met her before. I knew my classmate, but not her. And she says, so what do you do? (laughs) And my classmates who knew all went like this. And they stared. What is he going to say now? I said, I'm a pastor in Indianapolis. Her eyebrows went up. And she said, hmm, if I came to your church, would I be welcome? And I said, yes. I used her name. I'm not going to tell you, but I used her name. I said, yes, you would be welcome and you would be wanted. She stuck her hand out and I shook it. And the conversation shifted and we went on to talking about school days. We had a pleasant evening. I have a new friend now. Now, when she asked that question, did she mean, is your church an affirming church? That you embrace L- the LGBT community and their lifestyle, and that you teach that that's okay, and did she, or, or, or did she mean simply that? It would, would are your people friendly to people not like them? I don't know. I really don't know. And in that, it was a split second interaction. I answered honestly and forthrightly. I was sincere. I, I don't. I don't know what she meant, but but I answered her honestly. And you know why? Because if I understand Jesus correctly we are making a mistake when we make our identity about our sex or our gender or our sexuality. Our identity is much, much bigger than that. And we also err when we say that none of that matters and you can just do what you want with your body. It's both. You see, this lens will focus light into the darkest places. And so we need to make sure that the light we're sending through it is the light of scripture and the power of God and not culture. But we have to do it, church, with the heart of a lighthouse keeper, desperate to save people who are dis- from destroying their life on the jagged rocks of the enemy's lies. I know I said a lot today. We went long. One more thing. I just want you to hear me one more time and we're done. A Christian's view of gender should depend more on God's objective standard about it than our subjective experience of it. That lens... Will equip you to reject emotivism, but not relationships with people who embrace it. You'll be able to do exactly what Jesus did and become known as a friend of sinners. This study made me more sure than ever how much I need the gospel. Because my experience of my gender is broken too. And when I realize that, I see just how much I need Jesus. I need His power, I need His word to speak into my experience too. What about you? Do you need to experience the power of God this morning? It's available. It's free for the asking if you will simply acknowledge him as Savior and Lord. Simple, not easy, but you've got an opportunity to do it now. We're gonna stand and sing a song together and I would encourage you, if you've never made that decision to come forward, maybe you need prayer for something. Maybe you've got someone that's on your heart and you're burdened and would like us to pray with you for them. We'd be happy to do that too. I'm gonna ask you to stand with me and we're gonna sing and you respond as God leads you today.